Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Thomas Schickler, founder and CEO of Liquidity Marketplace. Liquidity Marketplace is a platform that will allow and enable Fortune 1000 businesses to lend to other Fortune 1000 businesses for their liquidity needs at a lower rate and a more efficient experience. And with that, here's my interview with Thomas. Hello, Thomas. Afternoon. Afternoon. Yes. Exactly. So, uh, so thank you for coming in. Uh, so Thomas Schickler, Liquidity Marketplace, tell me what is Liquidity Marketplace? So we've set out to transform liquidity markets for institutional clients. And by institutional clients, I'm referring to Fortune 1000 companies, mm-hmm. banks, and non-bank financial companies. Okay. All right. So we'll dive into what that means in a couple of minutes, but tell me about your journey as to what led you to start this company. Sure. So prior to starting this company, I spent nearly 30 years in transaction banking, most recently at HSBC, prior to that at JP Morgan, and before that at Citibank. Well-traveled. Yes. <laughs> and uh, across the globe as well. Uh-huh. So everywhere from London to Mumbai to Singapore, and uh, more recently have moved to Vancouver to set up LMX. Perfect. So... What was the problem you were trying to solve in the first place with sure. LMX? Absolutely. So going back to the out following the global financial crisis, the regulators became very concerned about the prospects for large banks to fail. And yeah. one of the principal areas of concern was around the liquidity of the banks. Because if you look back at what happened to Lehman and could have well happened to others. Across the board, yeah. Short-term liquidity was at the core of the problem. Mm-hmm. So what the regulators did was introduce a whole raft of regulations, which have been effectively framed as Basel III. Yes. And what those did was effectively ratchet up the capital costs for both institutional deposit taking, as well as short-term institutional lending. That made that whole area much less attractive for banks to do. And I learned about this firsthand because at HSBC, I had to do a few things, one of which was get rid of over $100 billion in institutional deposits. Jesus. Wow. Do a similar thing on revolving credit facilities to mm-hmm. an even greater amount. We introduced actually charging for deposits. So mm-hmm. picture, if you will, <laughs> company has some excess cash, they leave it with the bank and we charge them for the service. They must have loved that. Yeah, absolutely. And then the, the last aspect was uh, not only did we cut back on revolving credit facilities, but we ratcheted up the pricing. So if you're a corporate treasurer or a treasurer of a non-bank financial, you've got a scarcity problem. Absolutely. And it's have- interesting because this sparked entire huge syndicated debt market in Canada and elsewhere. And I know from looking at statistics on it, the amount of, I mean, exactly what you're talking about, it was experienced. The amount of high yield debt held on the bank's balance sheets basically eroded to next to nothing these days. So how do you solve that problem? So- In the first instance, what we're launching first in the U.S. is a marketplace in which these institutional constituents, which includes Fortune 1000 companies, Mm -hmm. certain banks, as well as non-bank financials, can borrow and lend directly with each other with no intermediation. Hmm. So picture, if you will, large West Coast technology company. They typically tend to be long cash. And let's say- It might be a natural fruit or something, but yes. A, a large oil company <laughs> yeah. Yeah. upstream needing to fund certain drilling activity, maybe short, 
So they would in turn need to borrow. So as opposed to them each going through their bank to effectively source that short-term liquidity or deploy it, they connect directly with each other on our platform. Interesting. So, okay. That's, you know, you're cutting out, you're basically becoming the new middleman. So the question I'm guessing you're going to be able to do is set a more convenient or more competitive spread than they would otherwise be able to get. Sure. So let's talk about what the options would Absolutely. be if, yeah. if you're going to source short-term liquidity, right? Mm-hmm. So typically they would take one of two forms. Either one, you'd rely on your revolving credit facility or some type of short-term overdraft. You'd go to your core bank and you'd hit that, Okay. Now, typically, pricing dynamic for that, even for, let's say, an A-minus company, would be anywhere from LIBOR plus 125. Depending on the time of the year, that could push out to over 200 basis points. Then that's one alternative, right? Another would be issuance of commercial paper. So then let's take a look at some of the costs associated with uh, issuing commercial paper. First of all, you've got to pay the rating agency to rate the paper. Secondly, you're going to pay the bid offer spread from your broker dealer. Thirdly, you've got to pay a fee to the broker dealer for the backstop facility that supports the program. You've got to pay lawyers to manage the program and you've got to pay the depository trust corporation for supporting the program. So what kind of, you know, when we look at that historically, what kind of percentage is that adding to the interest rate? So all in costs, and it really depends on the size of the company and their rating, et cetera. It could be anywhere from 15 to 45 extra basis points. So there we go. They're almost losing half a percent just in friction cost. Yeah. And so if you think about what some of these companies could do, take one of our West Coast technology companies who run cyclically short. So during tax season, they're way long because they provide software that helps people. But then the rest of the year, they run short. They're north of 150 plus LIBOR typically, right? Based on their credit rating though, they should probably be able to get LIBOR plus 25 to LIBOR plus 50 on our platform. That's a huge opportunity. That's a huge savings when you start looking at the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars that involves. Absolutely. So, you know, our expectation around the average trade size is about 100 million bucks. And the way we make money is we charge the issuer for a corporate to corporate trade that may be somewhere in the 10 basis points range. And because this is peer to peer, you're not having the backstop facility, you're not having the rating agency facility because you're dealing with Fortune 1000, you've already kind of selected into a group that is basically credit worthy in the minds of their lenders. Correct. Yeah, that's uh, it's quite interesting. So is this solely institutional? Are we looking at like any private money as well? If they're sizable enough, is this, I mean, I think it's at 100 million. Yeah, that, that's just my own question. <laughs> but so this is still in the works right now, right? Yeah, so we're looking to start trading with some pilot with our pilot clients in mm-hmm. the fourth quarter. Okay, thus far, I'm guessing you, of course, have t- sussed at the market. You've tested this out and asked people, like, would they be willing to participate in something like this? And the reaction you've gotten thus far? Well, it's interesting, mm-hmm. and one of the challenges and opportunities we have is that we're working with corporate treasurers, and corporate treasurers tend to yeah. be some of the most conservative people in the world Absolutely. for good reason. And so, it has been. A challenge to convince them to try something new. Not that they're taking any real meaningful risk that they don't otherwise already do. Mm-hmm. It's more just the perception of trying something new. And the or- transparency, right? Because I mean, like this sort of thing was already happening. They were borrowing from West Coast Company A to tech to, to oil company B, but the bank was sitting in the middle as creating that kind of man behind the curtain effect. And now they're seeing the transparency of it. Totally. Yeah. That, that's an interesting concept. But yeah. you know, the other thing about that, which is also kind of funny, is that, well, when you're depositing, right, you're taking the bank risk. Absolutely. Right. 
In a lot of instances, these companies can now take a similar type of liquidity risk with a company that's better rated than their the bank. bank. That's hilarious. So in some ways, they could get a better return yeah. at a lower level of risk, which is, is an a, interesting that dynamic. That is an interesting dynamic. Yes, absolutely. Wow. I can see that definitely being appeal. So you encountered some resistance to change, but overall... Yeah. So look, I break up our community into the courageous early adopters. Mm-hmm. And then we have a pretty substantial number of very large companies who've said, look, we love what you're doing, but we are in the race to second place. Show us some quality names on some early printed trades and we'll join. But we're not going to be the first to do it. Yeah. And so our approach has been, okay, let's work with a small subset, get them to start trading then we can take those yeah, printed trades. Yeah, prove the concepts. You're good. Totally. Yeah, it's the, old, it's the old problem that so many people encounter in business. It's the, well, you know what? If you're around in a year, maybe I'll give, you, I'll give you the business. But if you gave me the business now, I might be around, the probability of being around in a year significantly higher. So the old chicken and egg, but totally Absolutely. understand. Totally understand. So so that's on the lender's side. In terms of the, have you assessed out the, bar, the borrower market at the same time? What are they saying? It's the same struggle. Some of our clients, yeah. as I mentioned, are cyclical, meaning they're long part of the year. Yeah, they're short, short part of the year. Yeah. Both sides look at this as a great opportunity mm-hmm. because they're going to either improve their cost for borrowing or they're going to improve their yield as well as diversification from a counterparty perspective. Absolutely. I mean, before you were dealing with, in the U.S., there's far more banks in Canada. You're only dealing with a handful. I can only imagine that the ability to now diversify across industry sector as well in their lending. It's yeah. hugely valuable. Exactly. Oh, no. Interesting. And so has this been tried elsewhere before? Have you seen something similar elsewhere? Not anything that's directly similar. It's kind of strange, but the institutional liquidity space from a fintech perspective is like a sleepy backwater. You know, where fintech I was going to say, it's not, it's not like everybody's, everything's focused on the retail side, the more or less, right? This is something that's just hiding. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, you're seeing the emergence of fintech around fixed income. Yeah. And, and it's pure, pure lending on the com- yeah, on the small business side. I've seen that plenty of times now on the personal side, but not at the institutional level. Absolutely not. Sure. So, yeah. Interesting. So when are you looking, hoping to launch this thing? Fourth quarter of this year. Fourth quarter of this year. I'll be definitely looking with bated breath. That's, uh, this is very interesting, compelling. So basically that's now, that's the minimum viable product. Is that kind of the ultimate vision? Like where do you see this going beyond delivering Absolutely. initially? As I mentioned, we're launching first in the U.S. So mm-hmm. this is going to be for you, primarily U.S. entities of either global companies that could be headquartered elsewhere, mm-hmm. U.S.-based companies. So why specifically the U.S.? I mean, I think of some reasons, but your reasons. Well, first of all, it's the largest addressable market. and That's, that's one of the obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about on any given time, there's $3 trillion outstanding. The rest of the world combined probably gets you to $7 trillion. And interestingly enough, the U.S. regulatory regime is pretty favorable for us. One, our solution is a bilateral loan between the two parties. It is not a security. So, so therefore, not, you don't fall under the Bank Act. You're not dealing with you're not dealing with individual states at this level, are you? Or, um, or are you? Well, I'll come to that. Okay, fair right. enough. So we're not federally regulated yeah, because okay. we're not dealing with the security. Lending is actually regulated by the states in the U.S. Okay. And typically, those state lending regimes protect consumers. Our target market is sophisticated and hence don't qualify for protection under consumer lending. The pain for us was we had to do a state-by-state due diligence. That was pretty expensive. (laughs) No doubt. (laughs) It's actually interesting for us because it gets to expansion. For us, 
changing geographies, given the operational leverage we have from a technical perspective, is not expensive. I would think so. I mean, you're dealing with fewer domiciles, fewer fewer regulators, every country you go to. It's the regulatory and legal due diligence we have to do, which will be our primary cost as we look to expand. But the U.S. is obviously the biggest market. That's where we start. We can then expand geographies and we Mm -hmm. will. We will launch in Europe and the U.K. Brexit has made our lives slightly more complicated and not just our lives, but pretty much everybody's and certainly in Asia as well. So geography is one way to expand. And then we will add asset classes actually in the fourth quarter uh, this year. And as probably an additional line of business for us, we white label our capability both to banks as well as to other peer-to-peer platforms. That's interesting. So not just to direct to market, but you're also going to white label for them. Okay. So where do you see that working? I mean, they, they are traditional lending themselves as well. Are they just basically taking this to their clients and being able to receive a slice of the transaction? Is that what it is? Well, they're exactly along those lines. So one of mm-hmm. the principal problems that banks have in distributing their treasury products to their middle market and small medium enterprises is that the bank's processes are really uh, anachronistic. Archaic. Yes. Yeah. So we're talking about phone, we're talking email at best, and in many instances, fax. Yeah. So I know it may be hard to believe, but when... Oh, I believe it. I completely believe it. You're preaching the converted on that one. Um, <laughs> so what, you know, one of the uh, Canadian banks who's yes. working with us to white label will use our solution to digitize the distribution of their treasury products to their clients. Got it. So you're basically the AWS of this, essentially, is what you're hoping to be. You're, you're your first customer, idea. and you're also the infrastructure for everybody else, hopefully. Yes. Excellent. That analogy works in so many places. So interestingly enough, you said asset classes, and my ears perked up. Like, Are we talking about securitization at some point, or what are you looking at? So one of the um, deals that we're doing from a white-label perspective is with a peer-to-peer marketplace in Indonesia. And that platform is actually for receivables finance. So you have, let's say, a small medium enterprise. They're providing a service to a multinational corporation and they have an invoice. Now, the multinational is going to make that a uh, payable 120, yeah. 180 days. Yeah, the whole working yeah, capital. You're my credit card now. Thank you. SME <laughs> will be able to post their invoice on the platform We have an array of institutional investors who would love to buy that paper because they'll be getting a yield of like 15, 18% on what's effectively multinational risk. The SME gets their money straight away. It's a win for each of the constituents. Absolutely. Because I mean, and I've been hearing this from businesses for years, they've been stretching out those payable times for longer and longer and pushing their leverage as much as possible. So everybody else is becoming, everyone down the chain is becoming financing for everyone above the chain. Absolutely. And so we take the same software that we're using to run the marketplace in the US. Makes perfect sense. We can sense. leverage that same software to provide the solution in Indonesia. And at the same time, we can white label it to a Canadian bank to improve their that's treasury huge. distribution. Well, that's, that's huge. I mean, the ability to be, I mean, seen it countless times. Balance sheet's got massive receivables, They and yet they find themselves in a position where they can't deploy capital the way they want to effectively simply because they... They're not the cash is on the books, but it ain't there yet. So it isn't the bank accounts. So that's incredible. So basically, you saw this need, and you basically started talking to people. So how did you build a team around this? I'm curious. And how big is the team? We're a team of seven people mm-hmm. right now. Those are some lofty goals with seven people. I'm, like, I'm very curious to see this work. We're ready to scale as required, yeah. and principally, what we need to scale as we grow is really people to service the client. Yeah. So as you said, right, the platform seems to be. You know, multipliable across any number of different venues so or avenues. So it makes perfect sense. Sure. 
And and so kind of the I guess the origins, first of all, one of our lead technology people was business partner of mine when I was at HSBC. So he he was on the technology side, so that was a natural fit. And when I talked to him about the ideas that myself and our other partner, Brian Conway, had around solving for this problem, Marcus, our now CTO, was very excited about it. So it was a natural fit. Brian, I would be excited too if I heard the market size and realized the capabilities of this. This isn't that's it's, it's an interesting opportunity, that's for sure. So Brian Conway, our other founder, he was at Goldman in the UK. And he was facing some of the challenges from the compression of available balance sheet for utilization from a trading perspective. So he was seeing the implications <laughs> yeah. of Basel III from a, from di- a, different, a different angle. angle. And, you know, has a great deal, a great understanding of how products trade, et cetera. So he was a natural fit from that perspective. So that's the core. We brought somebody else along from HSBC with whom I had worked and a couple of other people that we also brought in through our, our network. So it's a small team. Importantly as well... And well, it sounds like a lot of horsepower in a small team, so well done. Thank you. Importantly as well, I'm a big believer in knowing what you're good at and then finding partners who are good at the stuff that you're Absolutely. not. And so we built a very strong relationship with a company in Australia that provides exchange technology. And so it, we're leveraging that platform. You didn't go from zero which, to one. You basically used something pre-existing and leveraged it into another area. And now that's very smart. Yeah. And look, from a standpoint of cost, made a lot more oh sense. Oh, my God, yes. And yeah. Cost and speed to market. Mm-hmm. And the people we're working with have, in previous iterations, written exchange software that supports NASDAQ and some of the leading exchanges in the world. So we knew that we were working with people with a pedigree. So hope for that volume. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, the CISA speed to market, let's talk about when this journey started. When was it again? Two years ago. Two years ago. Wow. So that's pretty quick. So what have been the biggest challenges you've encountered in terms of getting to where you are today and what you foresee before launch? I'd say the first experience is one, and I'd offer this to any entrepreneur, which is that things don't happen nearly as quickly as you might expect. No. Now, well, we've moved pretty fast to get to where we are, and comparative to the glacial pace at which global banks work, we've done yeoman's work. <laughs> but yeah. the, the reality and the implication of not being able to move as quickly as you like means that you probably need more capital than you think you do. Okay. And you need a whole bunch of personal resiliency to kind of live through the daily ups, but frequently downs and just delays associated with working with particularly clients for whom what we want to do is not necessarily their first priority when they wake up in the morning. So that's probably one been one of the key challenges we face is that the corporate treasurer's conservatism is something that has made us shift our distribution model. Recall, I was talking about how we had to prioritize. Absolutely. So we're working on the core, these early adopters, and then the fast followers. And that's a recognition and a learning that we had to go through. So that, that speed is probably the biggest challenge we face. The other thing which I hadn't necessarily anticipated is how much of my own time is dedicated to fundraising rather than execution-related activity. Yeah. And it's a much greater percentage of my time than I had ever contemplated. 
Yeah, I hear that common refrain from many founders that, you know, they feel like they're basically like a roadshow host more often than they're actually a technologist. Yeah, so it's it's not surprising. So thus far, funding response, the people who've, who've basically given you funding, like what, what's the feedback? What, what, their, what are their ambitions for this? So we have primarily one institutional investor and their aspiration and they're convinced that we could be a billion dollar company. It makes a lot of sense. It makes like you, when you hear it laid out in front of you. Right. And you think about the savings that come with this and the ability to actually pick your partner in this regard and, and for people to basically find someone who's maybe a strategic fit for them as a as an alternative kind of a cash partner. Like, I mean, lending was not always done through banks back in the day. It was always done through personal interpersonal relationships. Right. Now we're kind of, you know, this is almost getting back to that. It is. Yeah. And you look across industries, communities are the way forward and technology is Absolutely. enabling connections to take place that previously hadn't existed before. So for, you know, the aspiration from one of our institutional investors, obviously they're looking for that of significant growth. But interestingly, the largest other concentration of investors is from our technology partner. So um, they've made they personal investments in our company and that kind of tightens, if you will, the bond between us. So clearly they could see the opportunity as well. And these are people who've been in the exchange industry for a few dozen years, actually. Has there been any appetite from, say, the traditional banks themselves towards any kind of investment? Or are they just kind of looking at you with, you know, (laughs) squinty-eyed and saying, what are you trying to accomplish here? We've had some high-level discussions. Mm -hmm. Typically, those the larger banks will only invest post-money. And so we've had a few say, come back to us when you're at that point. But importantly, we're really targeting to serve first and foremost, the corporate and non-bank financial community. And so in the early stages, if we were to take a principal investment from one of the large banks, we might risk to be seen as a vehicle through which the banks are maybe looking to maintain their level of hegemony. Fair enough. And so we need to be careful about it. But really, we're not looking to disintermediate banks. We're looking to provide connections. And so some of our early adopters are, in fact, banks. A very large Swiss bank and a very large Chinese bank are among the uh, Oh, you're solving a structural problem for them, as you said. You're getting rid of friction. So that's that's hugely valuable. Absolutely. So a couple of final questions for you. There's one I ask everybody at the end of it, which is essentially what excites you the most about what you're working on or the industry or the opportunity in general? Like what is it that gets you, you know, those highs and lows you describe, which every entrepreneur goes through? What are the highs like? What is it that you see that makes you the happiest? It's really providing a meaningful proposition for the constituents. So that's the thing that truly excites me because I know when I was at the bank and we were going out and talking to clients about what their needs were and what their aspirations were, it was really difficult for us to be able to suggest to them that, you know, we're always going to be there for them when I had to like maybe update them with the bad news that they can no longer use notional pooling structures with us or we're going to charge them for their deposits. And now when we go in and I've yet to have a conversation with anyone in our target market who said, you know what, I'm not really interested in borrowing for less or investing for a higher yield. I've yet to have that conversation. So it's it's not one you're going to have anytime soon. (laughs) So that being able to bring to the market something that's good for all the constituents is something that I find and the team finds particularly gratifying. So being able to make money, sure. Obviously, we want to do that, 
But doing something good for the financial community that helps all the players. Well, you're saying the financial community, but literally, it's you know access to capital is the lifeblood of so of just about every business, right? And like you said, liquidity is a massive, massive concern for a lot of people. I mean, everything you've talked about today in terms of being able to take people with a surplus of liquidity and basically pass it off to people who don't have a surplus. I mean, this is all just economically stimulative. So this is fantastic. In addition to, to making anything that makes a bank experience less painful is also positive, and that entire uh, kind of the the receivables thing is is huge. So, I mean, you're working on some big problems. I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. And I, like I said, I'm going to be watching very closely to see how this pans out. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you for very much for your time. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. okay. So that was my interview with Thomas. I hope you enjoyed that. That was an interesting, compelling value proposition. And I think that uh, if this thing works, there's big things in, uh, in their future and I will definitely be keeping an eye on them going forward. So until next time, as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And until then I'm Jason Pereira. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.